educating our community about the impacts of gambling harm. Live from Bayboro College, Melbourne, Australia, listening to our gambling harm podcast on Life FM. Hello everyone and welcome. Live from Braver College in Melbourne, Australia, you're listening to our Gambling Hard podcast live on Live FM. My name is Adrian Andres and today my co-hosts are Sylvester, Tam and Jara to my left and Alyssa and Adam to my right. Our special guest on today's show is Fred Rubenstein. So welcome to the show, Fred. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. No worries. Our first question here, we're going to be asking you some questions about your um, gambling harm journey. Cool. Um, so question one, what have... You've gone through an incredible gambling harm journey. Mm. Um, tell us when it started and how did it actually start? When I started, the first time I gambled, like probably officially, it would probably be year nine when I was probably 14. Probably started just with like pocket money, multis at the tab, um, probably five or $10 sneaking in when the guy's not looking, hiding behind the machine, quickly putting it in. But to be honest, it started like much, much earlier. Like I was telling you guys earlier, when I was in primary school, I was addicted and completely obsessed with arcade games where you put in like coins to try and win a major prize. And there was one in particular called Stacker that oh, I would have invested a ridiculous amount of money in. And then it kind of progressed as I got older and through my you know, high school years into into gambling when I was 14 and then the money from that progressed into as I got older and older. So it just kept on escalating. Mm. Good question. I have a question for you. Do you think losing your dad at a young age sent you on this path? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think not having the boundaries from him and because he was the disciplinarian, you know, strict parent and yeah. my mum's a lot more soft and wild free-spirited like me so definitely not having those boundaries I was I didn't have enough boundaries as a kid um also because it was a way of like connecting with him and I guess dealing with my grief was um to gamble because he was a professional mathematician and a semi-professional gambler so by me gambling I was trying to emulate emulate you know, his behavior, what he did. And because when I was a kid, all I heard was about how intelligent he was as a mathematician. You know, I really idolized this and I was kind of envious a little bit because I had a little bit of his math brain, but nowhere near to the extent that he did. He was very well respected in the business and the math community. And yes, so to answer your question, definitely, I think definitely it sent me on that path. And it wasn't until someone later in my, you know, in my early adult years, held up the mirror and then I could start to see what was going on um, inside of myself that I could actually process and deal with the the, the loss. Yeah. I have a question. Sure. Um, what were the main obstacles of finding a job along the journey? That's a very, very good question. I think the first one was even early in my gambling days, I knew that if I stopped, I would have had to go get a job. And that was the initial obstacle was of how easy it is to gamble as opposed how hard it would have been or how scary it was to go and do hard work and put myself out there and you know do a job where you're expected to perform certain things. And it was much easier, especially when I had access to a big inheritance um, to just go and gamble instead and try to find success within that. And that was a really, 
really silly idea. Um, it really didn't work out. But yeah, the biggest obstacle was anxiety because I really was worried because I'd never done it. I was like, oh, can I do this? Do I really believe in myself that I could do this? You know, I don't want to do that hard work. I'd much rather just make money gambling. But that was a that was a really, really silly idea that, that didn't get me anywhere. And then the other obstacle was the yeah the anxiety and the confidence and the confidence of never having had serious responsibility just the confidence to put myself out there and um try and yeah try and look and do something that I didn't want to do you know it was easier to just keep gambling until until I was disabled and I couldn't anymore then I had no choice but to you know get a job um yep for a follow-up question for what Sylvester said, mm. um, I'd like to talk about the money that you received from your father's inheritance. Mm. Since, and um, what was your mindset when you received it? Was well, it- I, yeah, it was it was kind of a family inheritance in the sense that because I also lost my dad's mum, and so when I the day I turned eighteen, I went into the bank. The day I turned eighteen to make sure they had access to the inheritance, and at first. I didn't, my thinking wasn't, oh, I'm just going to go gamble all this away. My thinking was, I'm going to use small money to, you know, live and bet a little bit. And as I started losing and um, as I lost structure in my life because I, I tried to study outside of school, like when I finished, but as I mentioned to you guys earlier, I always, all throughout school, I loved the social aspects, but I hated the classroom. And I never connected with academia and study. So when I tried to start a degree after school, it didn't work out. For me, I dropped out. And that's when that small money that I was talking about earlier, making the small bets to start with, really escalated because it's like just time. You know, you're putting so much time into gambling and you have that amount of money. So the turnover, even though I wasn't thinking about it, the amount I was actually investing was much more than I realized. So it just kept on kept on escalating. And the more you go, the longer you go, the more you have to bet to try and reach that level of stimulation and, you know, that exhilaration. Um, so it just kept on spiraling, you know, went into a spiral where I became nocturnal. I would sleep. Um, I would sleep during the day and then at night I'd be at the casino. On the weekends I'd be betting on footy and then in between, you know, I'd go out for pub dinners with mates and be betting on horses and dogs, which I knew nothing about, which I knew nothing about. But I just had such a big sense of bravado and wanting to be seen as the man, you know. And reality underneath that, I was so lost. I was so lost and so scared and, and I really didn't want to face that. So gambling was a symptom of that problem of not knowing myself, of not being well in my health and not having a high level of self-awareness and acceptance over what had happened earlier in my life with the loss of my father. So it was a real symptom of a much larger problem. Mm. Oh, yeah, uh, I got a question. Mm. Um, what was your relationship with your friends when you started to get into a little bit of trouble when gambling? Mm. It's a good question because my friends, uh, are, like they're amazing in the sense they're so supportive and I wish I'd gone to them earlier and told them what was going on. But because, like I was mentioning, I had that bravado and that ego, I was lying to them. So whilst I was a compulsive gambler, I was also a compulsive liar. I was like, oh, I'm winning this, I'm winning that, you know, because I wanted to be seen as the man. And because that was my thinking at that time, it really warped my thinking, yeah. gambling. And so really unhealthy, irrational train of thought. Um, 
and especially after a win, you know, you feel like a, a hero and after a loss, you feel just horrendous. So I was really running away with that train of thinking and that really impacted my, my relationships because when I was low, maybe I would take it out a little bit, my frustrations on them. And when I was high, I'd be like showing off. And when you're showing off, you're actually just putting someone else down. You know, you're, you're putting yourself above other people. So there's no real need or place, especially for the things that I was doing. So initially they started to, you know, suspect that something was going on as it got progressive, um, progressively worse. And then they started to lose trust and respect for me because, you know, some of the things I was saying was not matching up things that they were hearing or seeing because what I was saying was not, was not true. A lot of the things I was saying. So the consequence of that was I was losing trust and respect from them. And that was really hard because they were a very supportive group of people and they're not the sort of people that are going to confront you and go, what are you doing? You know, but to lose that trust and respect for them, it was really hard. And it, the only way I could get that back was when I started coming out the other side when I really was open with them about what I was going through and uh, my recovery process and the damage that I'd done in my life, then I rebuilt those relationships and that trust and respect. But I'm lucky that they were so um, patient and loving that they would see, see the friendship through that because not everyone would. Not every friendship is as strong as that. So I'm very lucky to have the friends that I do. Uh, yeah, um, I got a question. Mm. Um, how did you feel when you were taking money from your mum? Like, what was the, like, what was <laughs> happening in your head? Like, what was you thinking of her reaction? That's a really good question. Um, so, so throughout that year, I lost the inheritance of two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, my family inheritance. That was mine, and my siblings had their own. And then, at that point. People wonder, like, why wouldn't you realize that's the moment to stop? And it was like, because I was mentioning earlier, I was completely consumed with this irrational logic and this compulsion and these impulses that were just completely overpowering me, you know. And when you're consumed by it, you, you're just thinking about how to win it back, you know, or how to turn it around or, you know, because I was so egotistical, I thought, oh, you know, this was my bad run. My, my run will come, you know, I just got to keep doing this, this and this and I'll solve, solve this. But it wasn't true. So living this logic and following these impulses, it led me to doing some really regrettable stuff. And one of them was that, yeah, when I lost that money, I started stealing from my mum. And the feeling, that's a good question. The feeling was here, I felt guilty. But in my mind, I felt entitled, like I'm entitled to this money because like I said, I didn't get enough boundaries as a kid. And so I didn't really, even though I felt guilty and nervous that I'd be caught, I didn't really feel, I didn't really feel, I didn't really think, oh, this is wrong. What I'm doing is wrong. This It's her money. I didn't have that thinking. I had the thinking of, I need this money to go and bet so I can, you know, turn things around. So it was very selfish. It was very selfish, self-centered self-absorbed thinking and yeah that's something that you know I, I really I mean I don't have many regrets because I've, I've learned so much but that's yeah that's one thing I'm really not proud of is that I, I stole from my mom and it wasn't until the third or fourth time that I did because like I said she's soft and open and, and free and wild spirited like me and her parenting philosophy was very much live and let live and they'll learn on their own um but the problem was with that was I didn't get the balance of boundaries because I lost my dad because he was a strict one. 
So the first couple times I stole from her and I knew I could get away with it because she was soft and free spirited. She just, you know, was like, don't do this. You know, why are you doing, you know, why are you doing this? Yeah. And then the, probably the third or fourth time, it's probably around by then, probably around fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. And she said, the third or fourth time, she said, "Enough." She said, "If you do this again, I'll call the police and I'll press charges against you for theft." And when she did that, it my self-preservation kicked in. That was my rock bottom, because, like I told you guys earlier, it's very easy when you're betting through screens, when you're betting through chips, to distance yourself from what you're doing, for, to distance yourself from the loss. It's much harder to distance yourself from that feeling of self-preservation, that pressure that she put on me that I needed to feel that if I don't change, something bad's going to happen. And I don't want to be incarcerated. So I felt that. You know, It's very selfish that, oh, I can do all this harm to everyone else, to my mom, to my friends, to my relationships. But it wasn't until I felt it on myself and I felt that motivating need to change that I was going to start turning a corner. And it wasn't the last day that I gambled, but it was the day that I decided to change my life, to do something about the problems that were going on in my life. Because I knew that I couldn't keep going this way or something bad was going to happen. That was her putting the boundaries up. That was, no, you've pushed me too far. If you keep going, I'm calling the police. And I was like, oof. And that's why it's so important not to enable any form of addict because yeah, you are enabling the addiction, you know, support the person, challenge the behavior. And I'm very grateful that she put that boundary up and I'm even more grateful for the fact that despite everything that I'd done to myself and to our relation and, and to, to her finances, that she was still willing to pay for a psychiatrist. And I reluctantly agreed to go with her to the psychiatrist. And I'm very happy that I did because that was, the best thing that I've ever done in my life. And yeah, throughout that journey, and it wasn't a linear journey where you just go in there and you get some medication and everything's fixed. It doesn't work like that. It was a grind and it was up and down. But throughout that journey, and I've been in it, you know, seven, eight years now, throughout that journey, I've gotten to know myself. And once I knew myself, I could manage myself so I don't run away with my highs and lows, you know, and I know how to transform my... Um, my obsessive desire to win and my, you know, desire to connect with people into much healthier, sustainable forms of life. So I'm very grateful for the fact that I had um, a mother or, you know, someone who was willing to support me to that level. And not everyone has that, guys. That's why it's so important that we have adequate support services because not everyone has, you know, a mom who's going to almost, you know, force it upon them to, to do something about it and to give them that support on a silver platter. Not everyone has that. So it's really important that first there's an awareness around how serious the issue of gambling harm and gambling addiction is. And second is that there's adequate support services. Because for me, I needed that very high level of support um, that a psychiatrist was. And I was lucky because the guy was a top, top, top professional. And, you know, he was just so patient with me and waited until... I was, you know, he didn't turn on me or he was very strong with the boundaries, but he was patient in the sense that it took me a while to actually open up to him, to build a rapport and to actually tell him the damage that I'd done in my life. And it wasn't until I started being honest with myself, okay, how much have I actually lost here? You know, and then I told, you know, my godmother, then I told my psychiatrist, then I told some family and friends. And by starting that conversation with myself, 
I started to be honest about my life and the harm that I was experiencing. And I was avoiding that and I was ashamed of that for so long. But facing that was the only way through. It was the only way through because it was true. And sometimes the truth hurts, but it's also extremely powerful. And I believe that telling the truth is never a mistake. You know, there might be at the right time, or but the truth is the truth. And the best thing I ever did was have those conversations with myself and my psychiatrist because I couldn't be here today speaking to you with this sort of clarity and self-awareness without it because I didn't know myself and I didn't know what was going on in my life. Uh, just in case uh, you're just tuning in, um, you're listening to our Gambling Harm podcast on Live FM, live from Braver College in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, my name is Adrian Andres and my co-hosts, Sylvester, Tam, Jara to my left, Adam and Alyssa to my right. Uh, here uh, interviewing our special guest today, um, Fred Robinson, um, telling us about his um, gambling harm journey. Um, just to follow up, um, are you able to tell us a bit more about your dad's business? Because as you said, your dad mm. was very smart mathematician, very good gambler, mm. but his business that he got and where you got your money from to actually mm. gamble, how did that all mm. come together? So he used his mathematical prowess to, he started his own, he had his own printing company, him and a few partners, and he kind of developed his own formulas. And that was his form of, you know, using his, his intellect into making something sustainable and profitable for the family. Then I think gambling was more of a side hustle for him. Um, but um, he, the gambling, whilst he did okay, you know, whilst he did okay, like he didn't, you know, do the sort of damage that I did because he was much more self-contained and rational. Um, it took a really serious toll on his health, on his mental and physical health because he had Crohn's disease and um, he also had bipolar disorder. And these things, to have a physical and a mental illness is very complicated because, you know, it, it can easily conflict. Like the bipolar is a mood disorder and it can convince you or take away your motivation to look after your physical health, you know, because you might be feeling very low or very high. And that's a really complicated thing. So even though he did a right in that sense that he didn't lose all, of, you know, didn't destroy the family business or didn't lose all the money that he'd been received or that he'd earned from his business of the printing press, um, he took a toll on his physical and mental health. And now that I'm an a young adult as opposed to a kid, I can kind of see that it's not, it wasn't all glamorous as I thought it was as a kid. You know, I had that idea, oh, look how glamorous this is. He's a genius and he's a winner and this and that. But that's not the reality. Even though that he didn't do the same sort of damage that I did financially, he, it caused other, had other consequences. You know, it really exacerbated the bipolar and it really pushed him up and down, up and down. Um, so that, yeah, it was, it was complicated, um, but yeah, I suppose I'm lucky in terms of the financial resources of my family. You know, I, I'm Polish Jewish and a bit of Russian in there as well. And my grandparents moved here after the World War II and they started their own businesses. So through that, you know, my family has been reasonably well off so that I could have had access to that inheritance and then also to that high level of psychiatry. So like I said, I'm very lucky in that sense. And not everyone has that. Not everyone has those resources to support them. And that's why it's so important to have good 
resources, adequate resources available to anyone suffering that sort of harm. And also, you know, gamblers, they don't often have a lot of money disposable. And if they do, they're spending it on gambling, not on, you know, getting help. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a very tricky thing. I, I have a question. Sure. In the article, you said that um, you started university and you said it wasn't for you. When did you realize that it wasn't for you? Oof. Um, that's a very hard question, brother, because that's a question that I'm still asking within myself if I, because I've, tr so initially, yeah, I was trying and I had an idea that I could do this, you know, this little pathway degree and then I could do that. But I guess by exam time, and I was super depressed with all the gambling and I had put on so much weight. And by that point I was like, I'm not even gonna show up to my exams. You know, I don't care. I'd lost any sort of care. And even since, even now that I'm healthy and that I'm well, I'm still struggling with my studies, man. I'm still struggling. My friends watching with this will probably be laughing at the question because they know how much studies are grind for me. You know, that's just my personality. Um, it's kind of my ADD brain. I really don't like sitting down and you know doing all the theory and just it just i've never engaged with it i've never been stimulated by it the same not the same way that i am with sport and with making relationships i'm kind of wild and free-spirited like my mom so sitting down studying grinding i've just i find it really hard and now coming out of gambling the way that i've turned my obsession of winning um, has been in now I'm a, I'm a soccer coach and I've actually, you know, I'm really improving my level. You know, I'm, I'm two licenses in, I'm two licenses off my pro license and two or three licenses off my pro goalkeeping license. And that is a way of me turning my, you know, my ugly habit of gambling into something healthy and sustainable. And also the other one is working with um, kids in particular, special needs kids. I love that. I love making that connection because I am, a special kid. I had, you know, I had traumas and I had challenges that I suffered in the classroom. So uh, being an aide and a therapy assistant was really, it's a really nice way to give back and of turning my experiences, my journey into something productive, you know, something healthy. And it's a way that it's a way of living that when I go to bed at night and when I wake up in the morning, I feel good. I don't feel sick in the guts like you do with gambling. You know, you have these you wake up and in the middle of the night and your brain is racing with stress and anxiety and you have this bad guilty feeling, you know, and the way you cover that up is by you go gamble to try and take away, try and distract yourself. And that's a really not a nice thing. You know, when you go to bed and, and you're waking up and you just feel not right, like something's not right. Yeah. That was very difficult. The, the study and it's a, it's a big grind, my man. And it still is. And it's something I'm wondering at the moment, how much, do I want to do a bachelor? Do I want to do a diploma? Um, and yeah, that's something that's really hard for me. And it's a big barrier, my history with studying. And it's something I have to face is that, you know, I find that really difficult. Um, and yeah, definitely. And that's a really good point, actually, because one of the biggest triggers for me for gambling was boredom. And not having structure, not having routine, not having stimulation in my life. I was bored. And I had access to this massive inheritance. So now imagine this in the context of AFL players, soccer players, rugby players, young people, lots of, you know, disposable income, lots of time in the off season and, you know, during the week when they're not training, um, lots of pressure, they're under extreme pressure. 
imagine the risk they have to to gambling harm. Imagine the risk to you know um, a kid who's 15 with ADD and traumas in his life who has low impulse control and he can download one of those apps where you know and it sets off his brain, bing bong bong, with you know the pokies or just imagine how easy it would be to hook them in. And once you hooked guys, that's it. They love it, the gambling industries, because they're not these nice guys that, you know, that they, and it's not all fun and games like they pretend to be on, on TV. Some people can gamble socially and that's okay. That's fine. I'm not anti-gambling. I'm anti-gambling harm. But what about the one guy in the group of 10 who actually is taking it to every extreme, who can't, who can't move on, you know, who is struggling and suffering and harming himself and, it's yeah, that's the guy I really feel for because I was that guy. And, you know, just because eight out of nine, eight out of 10 people can, you know, have a drink or have a gamble and they're fine with that. doesn't mean that everyone can. I don't have the conditions for that in my physiology in my personality in my mentality. I don't have the conditions to gamble responsibly. It's impossible. So, and there are other people who are like that and those people need help and they need to know that it's okay to have that. It's okay that, you know, gambling is not for you and there are support services to help. Um, yep. Um, to follow up on what your mother did to stop you from gambling, mm. was there any instances beforehand where she sort of tried to push you to stop or uh, was it just that no, one de- big moment? Definitely. definitely. Like she, she tried, but at the end of the day, actions speak louder than words. So, you know, she said this, she said that, but, you know, I knew I could get away with it. But the threat and the consequence looming of, you know, being indicted by the police, that really triggered my self-preservation. That really, I, I was scared. I was really afraid of, of getting in that level of trouble. There was a line I wasn't willing to cross. So that really pushed me to another level because the, all the other times, you know, disregarding her, too arrogant, you know, too much in my own head and my bravado and knowing that if I stopped, I was going to have to face all these things that I'd done to myself, all these feelings, all these consequences. And I didn't want to go through that. So when she was saying, you know, you got to stop, you got to do this, you know, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, and just doing whatever I wanted. But then when she said, and I knew she was serious, well, if you keep stealing from me, I'm going to call the police and press charges for theft. I was like, oof, you know, that's nothing. That's heavy. You know, that's not something that you can just talk your way out of that's some serious stuff so that really fired fired me up and like i told you guys earlier very easy to gamble through screens through chips much harder and and while you're doing that to distance yourself and it's much harder to do that when you are disabled in that way and threat you know and you feel that self-preservation from the threat and i think that is the only way you're going to change is you need to feel it it's one thing for you to say, oh, you know, you're, you're, you need help, you know, you're suffering. And it's another thing to feel that, that if I don't change, something bad's going to happen. And I think that's a really common experience of um, gambling addicts and especially the recovering ones is that, you know, we will go until we lose the house and then we'll turn it around because then we're out of, we have nothing left. So, okay, now we'll turn it around, you know. That's kind of the mentality. Like I'll go until I can't go anymore. So if I can get that earlier intervention and that earlier you know, dis- being disabled earlier. I think you can avoid a lot more harm. But to do that, you need a lot of people with courage to cut them off and stand up to them. And like I said, support the person, challenge the behavior. So yeah, it's a really tricky one, that one. But like, I, I believe that the only way you're going to change 
is you need to feel you need to feel the motivation to change. I have a question. Mm. Um, along your life of gambling, did you lose anyone close to you, and what impact did this have against you or your house? Hmm, that is a good question. I I didn't lose anyone per se. Um, I mean, besides my dad, of course. Um, but I definitely my friendships were. It was taking a toll on my friendships. You know, it was a real strain because they could see that I was unhealthy and that I was, you know, overweight and I was depressed and, you know, I was inconsistent with wanting to do things. Um, and they were hearing and seeing things that weren't matching what I was saying. Um, so that took a toll on my relationships, friends and family. But I was lucky that I didn't blow any up. It's, it's funny you ask that because I did borrow some money from two very close friends and my mom actually paid that off. And then when I got clean, I paid her off. Um, but that in particular, that took a really big toll because that borrow, you know, money from your 18 year old close mates and say, Oh, you know, I'll pay you back by this date. And then you're being dodgy about it. Cause you keep losing and losing and losing. That took a really big toll on one friendship in particular. And I'm really lucky that that person and I have reconnected. Um, but for years, yeah, it wasn't the same. Um, and he's a really good friend and actually he's a really good stable influence on me. And he's someone who was literally with me in the trenches of the casino. Um, and he's someone that, yeah, I'm very proud that we could repair that friendship. It definitely took a fracture from the gambling. Uh, well, just before we wrap it up, um, just a short but meaningful piece of advice that you'd give to someone that's going through this gambling harm. Mm. I would say to just have a look at the last few months and have a look at and be honest with yourself about how you're feeling, about what you're doing, about how the last few months have gone financially, emotionally, psychologically. And to be honest with yourself, just to be honest, you know, what's happened. And then when you're ready, when you have feel the, the courage to speak to someone you trust and tell them about what's going on, just because like I said, the, telling the truth is never a mistake. It might be hard and it might be scary and it is, especially in these situations, but it's, it's, it's life, it's a reality. So you can't, you can't run away from the truth. So my advice is just tell the truth. Right, sweet. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Fred, very much for um, being here and talking to us. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Um, live from Braybrook College in Melbourne, Australia, you've been listening to our Gambling Hub podcast on Live FM. I'm Adrian Andres, and these are my co-hosts, Sylvester, Tam, Jaira, Alicia, and Adam. Thank you, and join us next time. Educating our community about the impacts of gambling harm, live from Braybrook College, Melbourne, Australia, you're listening to our Gambling Harm podcast on Live FM.